This is a conversation with Kristen Ulmer. Hi, Kristen. Hi, how are you? Good, good. So do you want to maybe share a little bit about your background and uh, how it led you to what you're doing? Well, I was a professional athlete for 15 years. Actually, it's been my entire adult life, but I used to be on the U.S. ski team for moguls, uh, but I'm more well-known for being the best woman big mountain extreme skier in the world for 12 years, which means I jumped off cliffs for a living. I skied anything where you could die, if, you know, if you fell, and that's how I made a living. I made a living at risking my life for sport. And uh, what I'm doing now is I'm a evolutionary mindset coach with a background in Zen, and I'm also a spiritual counselor for people. So, obviously, we're going to spend more time talking about that part of what you're doing now. But I'm very uh, um, taken by the short description you gave, saying, I made a living risking my life, um, which is a pretty strong statement. So maybe we can stay a little bit with that and see what it okay. brings up for you. Okay. So uh, just, you know, there's this big buzzword in America right now, extreme. You know, there's extreme tacos, extreme banking, right? And it all kind of came from extreme skiing. And we don't really use that word in skiing anymore, extreme, just because it's gotten so cheesy. But it basically means if you're risking your life. And it's been greatly exaggerated. I can see why extreme tacos, you know, there's some really bad tacos out there. (laughs) Or extreme meal deals. But anyway, um, basically I was a very celebrated uh, athlete that was known for taking tremendous amount of risk. And it was an incredible experience. And I've never felt more alive in my life. And, you know, I was kind of selling the sexy wild side of skiing for a really long time. And so for me to now be a Zen facilitator, you know, I help people uh, get unstuck from unconscious patterns that no longer serve them anymore. You know, it's a, a very, you know, like I'm of service to people, right? Before it was just all about hedonism and my massive ego, right? <laughs> so it's it's such a radical 180, you know, that I've taken my life from what I used to do. Um, it, that's that I think is probably the most interesting thing. Yeah, yeah. And so, so obviously, there's that that immense difference between both. And the way you're talking about it is also like what seems like a bridge. Is you felt very alive when you were risking your life. And uh, Zen is about mindfulness. So maybe you might want to talk a little bit about what Zen is for you. All right. Well, let me refer to my ski career again. So most people that become professional skiers have wealthy parents. They attend the best schools. You know, they go to high school ski academies, especially people on the U.S. ski team, because I used to be on the U.S. ski team, too, for moguls. And my background is dramatically different. And I skied in jeans until I was 20 years old, right, which is another way of saying I wasn't very committed to the sport. I wouldn't even spring for a pair of ski pants, right, nor would my parents. And... By age 23, I was world-class at two different sports. I was on the U.S. ski team, and I was considered the best woman big mountain extreme skier in the world. And, you know, in those three years, I never had a coach. And in my life, aside from a couple ski lessons that I had in elementary school, I've never had a lesson. 
So I'm the poster child for it's all mental. Like, what the heck happened to me in those three years? And I, I didn't really think it was all that unusual. I just was living my life and doing my thing and trying to be the best I could be. And and so uh, since I retired as a professional athlete and I've worked with world-class Zen master named Genpo Roshi since, I've made a real study of what happened for me in those three years because when I work with professional athletes, that information is invaluable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's something about... Uh you know, something happened, there's a big change in your life. Uh, up until 20, you're this person who nobody would think would really ever really be a champion skier because you don't have... Oh, even worse than that. Even worse than that. I was the last to be chosen for uh, high school sports, like when wow. I picked teams. <laughs> like wow. I was just not considered athletic. And, and my school was very athletic, and I was the only one, you know, I was on the soccer team. I never once played a single minute of any game. Okay, so that's a, that's really almost like the classical superhero story, you know, Superman, yeah. you know, Clark Kent to Superman, that something happened. Yeah, what happened? So what happened? And so maybe that's a good part, a wonderful setup, but what happened that changed, you know, this uh, non-sports-oriented, non-achievement, you know, high sports person to... The, the ski champion. Well, I don't believe that you pick Zen. I think Zen picks you. And I was practicing Zen long before I even knew what it was. You know, I had a teacher, any of that. And I definitely was living that when I was a professional athlete, and I just didn't know it. And so when I found my teacher, I actually started a ski camp. It's called Ski to Live. And they're based on the mental side of skiing because we all know it's mental, right? But every single lesson, every single clinic, every camp out there is based on technical or physical training, right? Nobody knows how to teach mindset. And so I wanted to figure out what had happened for me in my ski career. I knew that it was weird. I didn't know why or how. I don't believe that you learn from experience. You learn from reflecting on the experience. So I wanted to reflect on the last 15 years of my life and figure out what the heck is there for me to learn. And so I partnered with this world-famous Zen master named Gempa Roshi to facilitate my camps. And I learned more about uh, my career as a professional skier and how skiing had affected my life in the first 10 minutes of my own ski camp than I had in 15 years as a professional skier. It was really profound. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what it turns out is that what I was really doing was uh, the quintessential kind of Zen practice, but I didn't know it. And so now that I've made it a nine-year study now of the intersection of Zen wisdom and athletics and, and ultimately also to my private clients that are, they may be athletic, but they're, they're not coming to me for athletic training. They're coming to me for life training. Right, like what? How does that translate? How can we make this stuff applicable? How can we, you know, not have to spend 20 years in therapy to have any kind of change? How can we do it in three hours? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um. So that's what I've been working on for the last nine years. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and what happens is actually you had found a way to get there, and during the last nine years, you have been digesting that experience and formalizing it. But uh, in a way, there's a part of you that had gotten it. And that's how you got the transition, and that's how you got the 15 years of that career. So your, yeah, your body-mind had absorbed it. <laughs> your body-mind had absorbed it before you were able to actually articulate it consciously. Yes, yes, exactly. 
And, you know, putting this stuff in words is one thing, right? That's a challenge. What I do, I'm actually, I'm not a teacher. I'm a facilitator. I help facilitate people into their own innate wisdom. We go on a journey into their unconscious mind and see where they're stuck in unconscious patterns that no longer serve them anymore. And so while I'm not going to take us on this journey, I will tell you the technique that I use, which is Big Mind, which is developed by Genpo Roshi. And Big Mind is a modern way to facilitate different states of consciousness to a practitioner in a matter of hours that would otherwise take a lifetime to experience. And, and uh, Genpo Roshi started develop, developing this in 1999, and I believe, and I think most people that come in contact with it believe that it is the most uh, profound tool for consciousness practice, for fast and lasting awakening that any of us have ever found. Ken Wilber, if you know who he is, says that it's the fourth turning of the wheel in Buddhism, and the first turning of the wheel was actually the life of the historical Buddha himself. So it's a big deal. Now, let me clarify, though, I, I don't teach Buddhism. Uh, i you know, take Zen away from Buddhism uh, because I, I, you know, the fastest way to end your business is make it religious. So uh, I don't teach Buddhism. I'm strictly Zen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so so there's a, there's a practice and a and a and a way of approaching the challenges of life that you have experienced in your own life, and that you're taking people through, and that helps open doors for people's own life. And Absolutely. And that, uh, you know, what struck me is it was actually I found out about what you do in a conversation at Alta in a dinner with somebody who was taking your Ski to Live workshop during that weekend. And what struck me is that this person had no idea about Zen. I mean, basically was even wondering whether it was related to Buddhism or not or whether Zen came first or Buddhism came late, you know, later, just absolutely no interest. But through your taking the first day of your uh, training with the big mind thing, uh, essentially what I found is that he was, in a way, able to answer the Buddhist question of, you know, who is it that is skiing? by shifting between these various personalities and these different... So, so it felt, what felt very nice about it is you had given him an experience of uh, being able to see different sides of himself as opposed to just being stuck in a default mode and thinking, this is me. Yeah, uh, the the work that I've done has had profound success for people. And some people come to my camps because they want to improve their skiing. Other people come to the camps just because they like skiing, but they want to improve their lives, right, enhance their lives. They want to enhance the experience that they have while skiing and, and find a way to translate it back into their regular lives, too. And, you know, I've had just remarkable success with people. Um, and, I mean, I'm become a media darling. Like, this, my work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Forbes Magazine, USA Today, and on and on and on. And um, I'm really proud of the camps. The ski camps are so good, and they're so interesting. And nobody else is doing anything like this you know, in the world, in any sport, and um, I'm really proud of them, and I'm really proud of the effect that they have on people, and, you know, the things that people write me afterwards about the transformation in their ski and their lives uh, really keep my uh, fire ignited to keep doing them. I, I've just finished my 10th year of doing these camps, and um, basically I take people on a radical journey of these different states of consciousness 
and they're, the, the practitioners are given a bird's eye view to their lives. I mean, imagine if you could sit in a room, like, let's, actually, let me back up. You know, we all can look at our friends and know what their problems are and what they need to do, right? Mm-hmm. But we can't see it ourselves. But imagine now if you could actually witness yourself, right, from a different perspective. All of a sudden, you can see where you're stuck. You can see what's going on. And um, so it has that effect where we can give ourselves our own best advice, not only in skiing but in our lives. And basically, I take people on a journey of um, the self and the no-self and, and true enlightenment and, and all these wonderful glimpses of all these different trends. Uh, transcendent states in just a very short period of time, you know, weekend ski camp, and send them home with a, a view of their life that they never imagined before. It's really cool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So a view of their life that they never imagined before. So it's like both the capacity to see yourself as if you're in flying the wall and observing yourself. So that's like mm-hmm. a great metaphor for mindfulness, you know, just observing yourself. Uh, but also a sense of different possibilities, not just seeing who you are, but seeing how you could be something else as opposed to you are this and that's it. Uh, and I'm curious, yes, absolutely. and I'm curious, you know, as you're talking about the difference in your life at, up until the age of 20 and what happens afterwards, in a way, what was your own inner experience of that possibility of being different? Well, I can tell you what happened for me in those three years, right? And if somebody wants to improve their skiing, I'll, I'll usually take them on this kind of journey. Mm-hmm. Um, similar, right? Everybody's different, of course. But my particular journey in those three years is that I always say that your greatest wound is your greatest treasure, right? And I had some wounds, and my wounds were like the perfect storm for a great athletic achievement. Um, I had a fear of not being special, a fear of being invisible. And so my fear was really great motivator for me. You know, it's an insecurity. It's, it's a demon that I had. And I spent most of those three years in the voice of the show off, right? Now I'm referring to big mind. We have different, we have 10,000 different aspects to who we are. Or look at it this way. We're each like a corporation with 10,000 different employees, right? Mm-hmm. That make up who we are. And so imagine a corporation and not one of the employees, you know, there's 10,000 employees, and not one of them knows who's boss, what their job description is, what their job title, right, what they're manufacturing, right, how well would any of these people do their job? Not very well, right? Mm-hmm. And so I interview different employees in people's corporation and separate them and say, how's it going, Right. And so one of the employees in my corporation that basically was the CEO of those three years was the show-off. And I didn't realize it, right, but every single run I skied for those three years, I made sure somebody was watching, right? Because then I would show up, look at me, you know, and and then people would say, oh, wow, you're a great skier, you know, and I'd be like, thank you. And then it would just keep feeding me, you know, motivating me to even do better and better and better, right? Yeah. the other thing that um, I did, I was a very arrogant, right? And the reason why a lot of people can never get to confidence is because they refuse to embrace their arrogance, right? And we can never, like, the first cliff I ever jumped off of, right, was a 30-foot cliff, and I threw a back scratcher, and I'd never done a back scratcher before, right? But I just saw all these guys doing it. There was a camera there, or there was a cute guy there, right? 
And I'm like, oh, well, clearly what I need to do to make it in this movie is jump off one of these cliffs and throw a back scratch. Never jump a cliff, never throw a back scratch. So arrogance gets a bad rap. Arrogance, if you look in the dictionary, is false pride, right? So immediately I went to arrogance. I didn't do that, right? I didn't have the confidence to know that I'd do it, so I'd never done it. But arrogance could do it, right? So the voice yeah. of arrogance jumped off this third-foot cliff, threw a back scratcher, stuck the landing clean, speed away. Within a day, everyone in Squaw Valley, which is where I did it, California, knew who I was. Within a week, everyone in the ski industry knew who I was because girls weren't doing things like that back then, right? Mm -hmm. And now, all of a sudden, I had the confidence to know that I could jump off a cliff and do a back scratcher. But unless you start with arrogance first, right, you'll never get to confidence. And that's a lot of the reason why people are are so lacking confidence. They refuse to be arrogant, right? Mm -hmm. And arrogance, you know, any of these employees owned and honored, right, and embodied, become very holy, very spacious, right? Um, if they're disowned, if we want nothing to do with them, then they come out in a pathological way. Then arrogance comes out as bragging and putting people down and all that, right? But if you own and honor it, it does nothing but serve you like in a very holy and spacious way. Um, so a lot of fear. Oh, and I was also very angry. So I had this fear and anger as emotions. It's like fuel to my fire. It's like we, you know, it's like we're all race cars, right? But we're sitting here with empty fuel tanks if we refuse to feel our emotions, right? My fuel was my anger and my fear. Mm -hmm. And uh, so a lot of fuel, right? And so that, that's another thing that I teach is um, getting in touch with your emotions. And artists and musicians know this, right? Like picture a ballerina and you hear people say all the time, the trainers say that emotions are more important than technique mm-hmm. when it comes to dance. It's so true with music, with anything, right? But we forget about that in sports. Our emotions are more important than technique. And so I was skiing from an emotional place for those three years, right? Mm-hmm. And I was showing off, and I was arrogant, and, and next thing you know, I was world-class within three years <laughs> without a coach. Yeah, yeah. There's one other thing that happened, too, is... Every time I had a problem, I crashed or something bad happened, you know, I um, I saw it as an opportunity for learning something new. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we don't do that in our lives. We think of our problems as something that we just have to endure before we can get back to the good stuff. And uh, But I, I saw every problem, every crash I had as a huge opportunity for learning and growing. Yeah. So I want to try maybe a, just a... Repeat some of what you said in a in a slightly different way to to just you know confirm I'm getting you. But something about uh, you know the big mind is the equivalent of seeing yourself as a big corporation of ten thousand people, and that understanding that there is kind of chaotic communication between them. And then uh, what you're doing is you honor and respect each of the voices. And for instance, when there is the voice of um, show off. You don't scold it and saying it's bad to show off. And when there is arrogance, you don't scold it. But you actually channel the positive aspects of that. And there is something very like a driving force for you that desired to be seen. Uh, it was actually a wonderful way that maybe was kind of the engine behind which some other stuff could come. And arrogance was a wonderful booster because then it gave you the first step to the confidence of doing things. And so by taking all these emotions, including, you know, anger and, uh, you know, uh, show-off, you were able to, to 
put a lot of energy and emotional energy into what you did, and that led you to something that was way beyond what the old Christian would be able to do. Exactly. And we can look at it this way. And, you know, the question is, what is Zen, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Zen, of course, comes from Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, right? And Buddhism is, many would consider it a philosophy, you know, the study of what the historical Buddha taught, right? And there are now many different types of Buddhism, right? So if Buddhism is the study of what the Buddha taught, Zen Buddhism is trying to feel what the Buddha felt, mm-hmm. right? So take the word Zen away from Buddhism, like Zen is to become one with, you know, Zen Buddhism to become one with the Buddha, right? Zen skiing to become one with skiing. If you're living a Zen life, is to become one with your life, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. All of it, including the bad stuff. And that's where people get Zen wrong. It's like they they look at Zen and they, you know, the image of the guy sitting on the cushion all blissed out and happy is really hard to shake, and they start to think that Zen is more like New Agey, where you, you know, breathe out negativity and breathe in happy thoughts, and it's actually not that. It's not about letting go of anything. It's about embracing everything. Mm-hmm. And another way that we can look at it is, like, are you are you a parent? Yes. Okay. So imagine that you have a house full of children. Let's say 10,000 children, God forbid, but (laughs) 10,000 children. There's two possible spiritual paths in the world, right? The first one is what most people choose and what most people think of as Zen, and it's just not true. It's the second one that's Zen. So the first one is we have this house full of children, right, and half of your children you've named happiness, joy, Mm -hmm. compassion, Wisdom, flower, sunshine, right? And there are the children on your left, okay? And you feed and you nurture and you show off to the world these children that you're so proud of. Look at what a wonderful person I am. Look at how happy I am. Look at how wise and successful I am, right? And then the other side of life, all these other children on your right side, right? You've named despair, misery, pain, suffering, fear, anger, right? Mm -hmm. Despite our best intentions, would we be able to treat all our children the same way? Yeah, yeah. No, we can't, you know. What we wind up doing is we take these children on the right, you know, all the ugly children, right, and we put a plastic bag over their head and we lock them in a basement and we throw away the key and we want to repress them and have and here we are showing off our children on this other side. Ooh, Mm -hmm. look at how wonderful I am, okay. But what's happening in the basement with all those children? Yeah. What are they doing down there? Yeah, yeah. So that's a they're really, screaming. They're screaming, and that's a shame and prison, and uh, and and you and instead of having the energy of all the children together, you really have half the energy that's counterbalanced by the other stuff. So you really have less than half the energy. Yeah, and it's even worse than that because what's happening in the basement is that. These children are screaming and yelling and carrying on in a delusional, maybe even pathological way, right? We can't get rid of fear, mm-hmm. right? So we repress it, and then it has to scream so loud in order to be heard, right? So mm-hmm. when somebody, for example, is having a problem with fear, it's not that fear is, you know, they're too uh, identified with fear. It's that they want nothing to do with fear, and fear has to scream at them in order to get any attention. Right? So these children here on the right-hand side are burning the house down. Right? And everybody can see it but you. Yeah. So, 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 so 
Go ahead. Let, let me just finish my thought, though. So the, the first spiritual path, and this is the one that most people think of as Zen, right, and that try, a lot of people adopt this into their life, most people, right, is they try to only align themselves with the good stuff in the world, and then they repress the bad stuff, right? That's one spiritual path, right? Zen is the opposite. Zen is about taking all those children on the right side out of the basement, owning and honoring them, right, mm-hmm. and shining a light of consciousness on them, right? Mm-hmm. So Zen is about seeing all that life has to offer and seeing the wisdom in all of it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm happy sometimes, I'm sad sometimes. I'm nice sometimes, I'm a real jerk sometimes. It's all enlightenment. That's Zen, yeah. right? Yeah. So in those three years, I was embracing all of me. I was embracing all of my children, right, all of my employees, and finding the wisdom in all of it, right? And, you know, think of your life also, maybe use another analogy, as an orchestra, right? And if you're only aligning with the good stuff, it's like going through your whole life with only listening to trumpets, Mm -hmm. right? Trumpets are great, you know? (laughs) Nothing wrong with trumpets, right? Right. But, okay, enough already, right? You know, I had the whole orchestra to draw from, right? For my creativity, for my learning and growing, um, for my motivation, all of that, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't realize I was doing it. That's what I was doing in those three years. And that's what Zen practice is. Mm. So that feels very, very beautiful as you talk about it, and I'm realizing as I'm listening to you, there's a sense of a a mixture of emotions that are coming up, uh, you know, that's stirring, that are stirred. So that sense of um, as you're talking, you're communicating not just an abstract concept, but in a way I'm finding myself um, resonating with a bunch of emotions that are part of your digested experience of life. And that feels very, very nice moment of resonance. Um, oh, the, the emotions, I believe, are the key. Yeah. That if I'm ever working, like my first session with somebody that I haven't worked with before, especially if it's an athlete or it's somebody that's having a, a problem, you know, because athletes won't call me unless they feel like they're really not performing at their best. Uh, they're in that habit. And, Whenever somebody's calling me, let's say they're in crisis mode, the first place that I always look is to see what emotions they've been repressing. Mm -hmm. And the emotions, of course, being fear, anger, sadness, joy, or maybe sexual feelings. But the the ones that I look to first are, have you been repressing your fear? Have you been repressing your anger? Or have you been repressing your sadness? Mm -hmm. And that's usually where people are stuck. Yeah, yeah. And so... It's interesting because, in a way, it brings me to a different visual. You know, you mentioned your starting point was to say the image that people have of Zen is this nice, happy person, centered, calm, you know, just... Uh, uh, and uh, and my first thought as you're talking is replacing it with a picture of you uh, doing your, uh, you know, acrobatic uh, extreme ski. Uh, and so, just, okay, so this is Zen as opposed to, not as opposed to, but another way of conceiving of Zen. But then as you talk some more, I just see, okay, that picture of, um, you know, that extreme skiing moment is a picture of courage, a hero, you know, and in a way, all the positive stuff in our society. And so what is interesting in hearing you talk is that sense of looking at it and also seeing that in a way that's not visible in the picture, 
This is also the picture of fear and all kinds of negative emotions, without which this moment would not be able to exist. So in a way that's like the tip of the iceberg, but this moment is made possible and fueled by your making friends with these more difficult, you know, children. Right, and, you know, a couple things strike me about what you just said. You called them negative emotions, right? Uh, with, there is with no quote, such with, thing. With quote-unquote. Yeah, yes, with, yes. with quotes around it. Yes. Right. Yes, it's yes. like we have just grown to interpret these emotions as negative, but actually they're very beautiful, very holy. And, I mean, you talk to any person that is a, a Zen practitioner or teaches Zen or maybe is a Zen master, and uh, that they'll all confer that this is this is what Zen is about, just completely submitting to your life in all of its forms and all of its beauties and all of its horrors, right? But most people don't realize that. And I actually had a, a fight with a friend recently who doesn't have any kind of consciousness practice, and and uh, and she immediately started saying, "Well, you're not acting very Zen." And I just, like, I, like, got so upset, like, you don't even know what Zen is, right? Like, Zen is not about pretending that you're not upset when you're upset. Zen is about, you know, if you're angry, be angry, right? If you're afraid, be afraid. If you want to show off, show off. Uh, and, and that there's holiness in all of it. And we have compartmentalized life, you know, into good and bad. And that's what our minds do, right? Our minds separate things into good or bad, right or wrong, that's how they work. And uh, that's not going to change, okay? So we look at that yin-yang symbol, right? It's mm-hmm. tattooed on every other hippie's leg, right? <laughs> it's everywhere. <laughs> and what does that even mean? And some people would say, oh, it's the balance between masculine and feminine, but basically it's the, the dualism, right? Mm-hmm. The balance between opposites. And when we think about what it means to be centered or balanced, I mean, let's look at that word. Oh, I really want to be centered. Is that centered between happiness and joy? (laughs) No. It's centered between um, happiness and sadness. Like, we keep saying that we want to be centered. We want to be balanced, right? Mm -hmm. We want to be in harmony in our lives. Well, let's look at that word. In harmony with what? In harmony with everything, Mm -hmm. not just the good stuff. And uh, that's where people get really stuck is because they spend so much of their lives looking at what they don't want to feel and what they don't want to be and then repressing all these things that they want nothing to do with. It's like declaring war on your very self. Mm-hmm. And it's a war that's unwinnable that they will fight their whole lives. And so that's what we do in Ski to Live is we get to s- people to see that balance is between opposites, the good and the bad, right, the things that are seen bad, and then we see the good in all of it. Mm-hmm. And we find the wisdom and the motivation and uh, the majesty in all of it. And it's such a relief for people to end these wars with these things that they see as bad. And, you know, sometimes these patterns have been set since a very young age, right? Mom says it's not okay to be angry, right? It's not okay to show off. And then we repress it, and then we just know that there's something wrong with us, and we can't quite put our finger on it. And I help people see that they've been repressing these employees or these children in their lives, right, mm-hmm. these sides to themselves, uh, for years. And it's 
it's a war that they've been fighting that's unwinnable their whole lives. And instead of living their whole lives, if only, if only, if only, if only, death. With consciousness practice, we can see where we're stuck, get unstuck, have a different relationship with that employee, uh, let it grow up, right? See the yeah. wisdom in it and allow it to enhance our lives rather than cripple us. Yeah. So, so, but so, in a way, as you talk about it this way, what it brings me is the 20-year-old Kristen, who at that point, it looks like those bad employees, those shamed children, you know, had come of age uh, and, uh, you know, were able to take more of a stage. So I'm just curious as to what your consciousness was at the time that made it possible to shift. Was it simply that the appeal of show-off was so strong that, in a way, it was the engine that drove the whole train? Or was that something about you making being more at peace with some of the, uh, you know, so-called uh, bad children? I feel like the engine that was driving my whole train was fear, mm-hmm. for sure. And that's probably true for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, fear is... The oldest part of the brain, it's with us on a cellular level, uh, you know, the first amoeba ever, mm-hmm. you know, the first form of life uh, would move reasons, away yeah. Yeah. yeah, from fire in order to save itself, yeah. even though it has no brain, no spinal <laughs> column, right? So it's like fear is with us on a cellular level from the first life form. Mm-hmm. And we have systematically declared war on fear, right, right rather than see it as our friend. Do you realize Bill Gates is entirely, his whole life, what's been driving the chain for him is fear of failure, mm-hmm. right? It's made him very famous, very successful, okay? Um, Lance Armstrong, right? He's motivated by spite, mm-hmm. okay? Sometimes unpleasant, I hear, to be around, but look what it's offered him in his life. Mm-hmm. And spite, of course, is birthed from fear. There are primary colors, of course, there's uh, yellow, red, and blue, and from which all other colors are created. An infinite number of colors comes from just these three little colors, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's the same with the emotions. We have five primary emotions, fear, anger, sadness, joy, and sexual feelings, and from that, all human experience is birth, just like the primary colors. So if we repress our emotions, right, we're repressing our very lives. And so when I think about what was driving my train, I immediately have to look at the emotions. Mm -hmm. And it almost always is fear of some sort. And it was uh, expressed rather than repressed in me. Mm -hmm. Did not know it, did not see it, was not conscious of it, am now. I can see it. It was just a really magical time for me. And what could have otherwise been a girl wrapped with insecurities and fears and pains and anger and frustration, instead I was embracing it, and it became light, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I shined the light of consciousness on it, and it became my greatest treasure. Yeah. We all have these problems. We're either crippled by our problems or we're motivated by them. Mm-hmm. The, the key is to embrace them. You'll be motivated by them. If you repress them, you'll be crippled by them. But so you know, in a in a you know just everyday way, uh, the concept of anger giving energy is something that most people can somewhat relate to. Um, yes. The concept of fear 
leading you to be this apparently fearless extreme skier who does death-defying acts is maybe a little bit more difficult on, a, on an everyday level to grasp. So what was your experience of that? Mm, that's a really good question. Uh, I mostly repressed fear. The fear was working covertly, right, behind the scenes from the basement to motivate me. Mm-hmm. But if you had asked me during that time, aren't you afraid of dying? You know, and I had a lot of reporters asking me this, aren't you afraid of getting injured, getting die? I would have said, I don't feel fear at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was repressing other aspects of my fear in order to ski the way that I wanted to. And how that showed up in my life is that my mother had to own it for me. Mm. You know, like if somebody's throwing their clothes all over the room, somebody has to pick them up. So she had to pick up the fear for me. And it, in many ways, ruined my mom's life. And I feel really bad about that. Mm. For 15 years that I repressed fear, my mom had to own it for me. Now she's just a very habitually patterned, fearful person. And I see it as my fault. The other way that fear covertly still showed up was I had a lot of injuries. Mm -hmm. And I'm absolutely convinced that the reason why I had these injuries is because of repressed fear. Yeah, yeah. Just to give it, I needed a break, right? My body was just like, I need a break. Um, Another way that it showed up is uh, problem sleeping. Mm -hmm. You know, I have light, I'm a very light sleeper. It's, It's very hard for me to sleep in any kind of, noise or anything, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's because of repressive fear. I also have medical conditions. I It triggered rheumatoid arthritis for me, repressing fear. It triggered, um, uh, I now have adrenal fatigue. I burned my adrenal system out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your, your body doesn't know the difference between the excitement of jumping off a cliff and having fun with that versus being chased by a tiger. All I know is that, you know, all that my body knows is that it was just flooded with adrenaline all the time. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, um, and, you know, there would be no adrenaline without fear. There would be no excitement without fear. There would be no adventure without fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, letting my fear through, but the, the rest of it was wound up uh, really deeply negatively affecting my life. And, I have made it my practice for almost 10 years now to have a better relationship with fear so that I can heal my body. And it's working. I don't have any aches and pains anymore. Um, I know I don't, you know, I go to a massage therapist, even though I've had a remarkable number of injuries, and they're like, okay, where does it hurt? It doesn't hurt anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I'm 45. So it's it's my practice now to have a better relationship with fear and uh, try to undo some of the damage that happened during my ski career by repressing it. Yeah. So it feels very moving as you're talking about it, that sense of um, that intensity of the presence of the fear and the blindness to seeing it. And uh, also the very, you know, that sense of how it shows up in your body, how it shows up in your life in accidents, how it shows up in people around you and your mother. And I see, you know, very nice what you said at the beginning about that possibility of, I forgot the image you chose, but being a fly on the wall and seeing yourself like you see others. Um, yeah, bird's eye view. The bird's eye view. So uh, that's a very nice thing of during that time, you know, you were blind to it. And uh, then you're able to see it and integrate it and make room for it and own it uh, and see the changes in your life. And it, it's a very moving uh, experience that you shared. 
Yeah, and it's interesting how it's coming out now. Like, I'm afraid of heights now. <laughs> Can you imagine? I, you know, I yeah. made a living jumping off cliffs. I jumped off a 70-foot cliff more than once, and, you know, it didn't feel anything <laughs> until afterwards, <laughs> excitement. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's interesting, and it's a lot healthier. I'm yeah. a much healthier person now. Mm-hmm. But I needed to have, I needed to run, have it run its course the way it did when I was younger. I was, you know, for somebody with a personality like mine, to be able to have a pair of skis is much better than, um, drugs or alcohol or sex or, I mean, I, I had such a wild personality. Mm-hmm. So to take that tremendous amount of energy that I had and direct it towards something, and, and granted, uh, the other thing, after repressing fear is I'm really lucky to be alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of my friends are dead. I've watched a lot of friends die, right? You know, skateboarding. Yeah. You could get hurt, but big mountain skiing, people die all the time. Yeah. And the injuries are radical. I would say big mountain extreme skiing uh, has the highest, if you're a professional, the highest uh, injury and death rate of any sport in the world, uh, with the possible exception of 8,000-meter peak climbing, there's probably more deaths if you're a professional. And motocross, I think, has more injuries if you're a professional motocrosser. But, I mean, we win for sure. So, mm-hmm. and I've had, I, I uh, one time couldn't sleep at night and I, I decided to count my dear death experiences. And mm-hmm. in 10 minutes, I remembered 30 of them. And then wow. I'm like, okay, that's enough. And I forgot. I stopped, mm-hmm. like, without even having to think about it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was voted by the ski industry to be one of the top 10 skiers most likely to die. Mm-hmm. And I'm really lucky that I survived. So back to death, uh, back to fear, right? Fear is our friend. It keeps us safe. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to repress that. The yeah. only reason why it ever gets out of control and seems to run our lives is because we are repressing it. If you embrace it, then it's kind of like a nagging, whining child. If you ignore that nagging, whining child, the kid will only get more whiny and naggy, you know, louder and louder until all of a sudden they become uh, pathological. Yeah. Right? But if you But if you were to turn to them and lovingly say, okay, what? <laughs> what is it you're trying to communicate with me? Then they won't have to worry. Yeah. It'd be over in 10 to 50 seconds, according to brain scientists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Like the, the motion of fear re- uh, releases a hormone and surges through your body, and then it's gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever you repress becomes your repressor, though. What, if you repress it, then it sticks with you, and it, it won't stop until it feels heard. Yeah, yeah, so you're keeping that adrenaline, you know, and that uh, potential movement stored in your body, but it never releases. So it's like shock absorbers. Anxiety. Yeah. 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 What is anxiety? Anxiety is just fear of fear. Mm-hmm. It's just that we so don't want to deal with fear that we're afraid of it, right, that it becomes this persistent, nonstop, sensation in the body of discomfort. Yeah. 
So, so anxiety is nothing but fear of fear. So, so that's a very nice way to kind of, uh, in a way, loop the loop with the, what you said earlier about Zen, where, you know, that picture of the serene Buddha sitting, meditation, serene being the exact opposite to fear and any disturbing emotions. And uh, that sense of actually that uh, your uh, life experience has been to embrace the fear. Yes, and so the Zen master sitting on the cushion, he's not successfully blocking out fear. He's just embracing it. Yeah. So Zen is not about suffering less. Mm Mm-hmm. Zen is about embracing your suffering. Yeah. So in a way... that image of the, the, the smile or the, the, the serene smile is not the serene smile of I have no fear, but the serene smile of the proud parent saying, fear, you are my child too, you are my beloved child as much as all the others. Yes. And taken to the extreme, my teacher one time said, because, of course, the hippies all say that if it's out there, it's in here, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever you do to the web, that you do to yourself that we're all connected, that collective consciousness, right? And so it was witnessed in Auschwitz, a a grown man taking a piece of food out of a starving baby's mouth in order to feed himself. This actually happened, Mm -hmm. okay? So taken to the extreme, right, the true Zen master will realize that given the right circumstances, he, too, is capable of taking a piece of food out of a starving baby's mouth mm-hmm. in order mm-hmm. to feed himself. And until we realize that, right, we can never really truly be enlightened. Mm-hmm. We can never really truly be a part of the whole. Yeah. So that's taken to extreme. Yeah. That yeah. may be hard to grasp in a, in a 20-minute you know, Zen class, but if you get it, it it'll lead to sudden enlightenment. <laughs> yes. Yes, so so yeah, that that's a that very nice, very nice way of that acceptance, that coming to, and that's that sense of that's where coming to peace is. I too can be a monster, given the right circumstances. Mm-hmm. I too can be a monster. Yeah, absolutely. This conversation is part of the What Sustains Me project. See the website at whatsustainsme.com that we're afraid of it, right? That it becomes this persistent, non-stop sensation in the body of discomfort. Yeah. So, so anxiety is nothing but fear of fear. So, so that's a very nice way to kind of, uh, in a way, loop the loop with the, what you said earlier about Zen, where, you know, that picture of the serene Buddha sitting, meditation, serene being the exact opposite to fear and any disturbing emotions. And uh, that sense of actually that uh, your uh, life experience has been to embrace the fear. Make room yes, for and so the Zen master sitting on the cushion, he's not successfully blocking out fear. He's just embracing it. Yeah. So yeah. Zen is not about suffering less. Mm-hmm. Zen is about embracing your suffering. Yeah. So in a way... Zen that- is that image of the, the, the smile or the, the, the serene smile is not the serene smile of I have no fear, but the serene smile of the proud parent saying, fear, you are my child too, you are my beloved child as much as all the others. Yes. And taken to the extreme, my teacher one time said, because, of course, the hippies all say that if it's out there, it's in here, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever you do to the web, that you do to yourself. 
that we're all connected, that collective consciousness, right? And so it was witnessed in Auschwitz of, of grown man taking a piece of food out of a starving baby's mouth in order to feed himself. This actually happened, mm-hmm. okay? So taken to the extreme, right, the true Zen master will realize that given the right circumstances, he too is capable of taking a piece of food out of a starving baby's mouth mm-hmm. in order mm-hmm. to feed himself. And until we realize that, right, we can never really truly be enlightened. Mm-hmm. We can never really truly be a part of the whole. Yeah. So that's taken to extreme. Yeah. That yeah. may be hard to grasp in a 20-minute you know, Zen class, but if you get it, it it'll lead to sudden enlightenment. <laughs> yes. Yes, so so yeah, that that's a that very nice, very nice way of that acceptance, that coming to, and that's that sense of well, that's where coming to peace is. I too can be a monster, given the right circumstances. Mm-hmm. I too be a monster. Yeah, absolutely. This is part of the Active Pause podcast at activepause.com.